Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. I want to... Uh... I want to uh, start the talk tonight um, with some words. (laughs) This could be a long talk. (laughs) Okay. I want to start the talk. This is really a talk about suffering, actually. So. I want to start with, <laughs> I want to start with some words from uh, Khalil Gibran. <clears throat> Your joy is sorrow unmasked, and the self-same well from which your laughter rises was oftentimes filled with your tears. The deeper that sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can contain. First noble truth, there's suffering in life. Life is hard. You come here to uh, wake up to the truth and you've got to be willing to open to all of it. You might have some hope, some fervent prayer or remembrance of the last few days of your last retreat, how sweet it was. And somehow um, cross your fingers and maybe hope you can just uh, take off from where you were. But um, that's not usually how it works. So I wanted to talk tonight about the fact that there's difficulties in practice. You know, this is, it's a modified version of a hindrance talk. And you've all heard hindrance talks probably, you know, many times over. You can share the list and from your own experience, oh yeah, there's difficulties in this, in this practice. Uh, but since this is the, um, the third day, uh, it's good at this time often to uh, remind us all that when things get hard, you're not doing it wrong. That what you're doing is uh, learning to navigate through the choppy waters and to use the hard times to wake up. You know, the Buddha, when he was asked what he taught, he would say, I teach about suffering and the end of suffering. And paradoxically, 
the more we really understand and, and come to terms with the fact that there's suffering in life and learn to work with it, the less we're afraid of it and the possibility of coming to the end of suffering, the highest happiness. And as much as we might want to minimize it, it's often, not always, but often the thing that uh, makes, wakes us up most, most of all. In the Buddha's own story, it's what got him to set out on his quest when he saw as good a life as he led, he and everyone is subject to old age, sickness, and death, the heavenly messengers, and that's what motivated him. Perhaps you're familiar with the, the list. I don't think it's on the, uh, it's not on the, the list of lists that Sally had, but one of my favorite lists uh, of all, uh, a variation of dependent origination called Transcendental Dependent Arising, where it starts out with the fact that suffering can be the causative factor for faith. And faith can be the causative factor for gladness, which can lead to joy, which can lead to happiness and contentment and equanimity and all the way up to Freedom. Isn't that amazing? That suffering can be the causative factor and is often the causative factor for faith. Let, let me ask you, how many people came to practice motivated by trying to figure out or respond to the suffering in their life? Look around. Look around. It's, this is not just a theory. This is often how it works, because it shakes us out of our complacency and has us taking a look, what is it really all about? Where is real happiness to be found? Uh, a few weeks ago, I was with, um, well, uh, perhaps uh, some of you know and perhaps some of you don't know, um, uh, a few weeks ago, Joanna Macy's um, husband, Fran Macy, who's a, an extremely, a very inspiring man, um, passed away. He passed away on Inauguration Day, actually. And he had spent the day um, celebrating, and uh, he said, this is the happiest day of my life. And then he took a nap, and he, uh, he died of a heart attack. And he had had some, um, just a few days before, been uh, in, the, in the hospital and said, you know, there's some serious heart failure there. It's, isn't that, if you've got to go, go on a high note on the happiest day of your life. And uh, for the next two days, um, his body was at Joanna's house, and, uh, and, and friends who wanted to could come over and sit with the body. So I, um, I went with uh, my wife Jane 
and we, um, we went at the end of, uh, of the day on Wednesday. Uh, and we were the last people there, actually, so it wasn't a whole crowd by that time. And uh, there we were in the room. It was really quite moving with, um, with Fran, who looked beatific, and, um, and Jane and I, and uh, did a little chanting and, and, um, and some reading and some speaking to, to him, and Jane did too. And Joanna came in with us, and the three of us were there. And Fran had this... Um, amazing um, boyish enthusiasm. He was about to turn 82. He, he didn't look it at all. And a very powerful man who had a lot of... Um, he made things happen. He was one of the key connectors between uh, U.S. and Soviet uh, consciousness uh, relations around safe energy and a, a whole lot of other consciousness and activist stuff. Uh, and then continued uh, U.S. and Russia. And uh, uh, he, he just had this buoyant personality. And I, I said to Joanna, I asked her, I said, was he always like that? And every time you see him, you just kind of feel good. Hi, how you doing? And uh, I expected her to say, oh, yes, you know, that's who he was. And she surprised me. She said, no, he wasn't. I said, really? She said, yeah, when, uh, when they were together. They were married for over 50 years. I went to their 50th anniversary a few years ago. Um, he said, he said when, she said, when we were first married, he, um, he had a lot of ambition. He was kind of, I think, born into, you know, upper crust and, uh, and, and had big visions of being an ambassador and working in the foreign service. And, uh, and he was very focused on that for first years of their life, which caused a little bit of um, uh, um, conflict between them. Uh, he did join the Peace Corps, and that kind of softened him to seeing, okay, there's something really more here. But she said the, um, the turning point came when he was 45. I never knew this about him, and so I was listening with rapt attention. She said when he was 45, he had a massive heart attack. And that completely <laughs> turned him around and got his priorities straight. And he saw, you know, let go of the ambition, let go of the foreign service. I want to devote my life to real service. And, uh, and he just got lighter and lighter and lighter through the years. Suffering can be the causative fact factor for faith and point us in the right direction. Everyone suffers, but many of us think that it's a mistake when we do. I, and I um, love this uh, anecdote from Rodney Smith, who teaches up in Seattle when he, he ran a hospice for many years, when uh, he said that he was with this woman, I think she was 95, 93 or 95, who, when she found out that she, was, uh, she had a terminal illness and hospice was sent in, her response was, why me? <laughs> this is not seeing the bigger picture uh, of things. And we feel that there must be some kind of a, a mistake. And that's one reason why the Buddha said to every day reflect on the fact that this body will grow old, will become sick, will die, everything near and dear to me 
I will be separated from, and I'm the heir of my karma. Every day, so we're not surprised or confused. But still, we can try to avoid. My, my main Dharma inspiration, Neem Karoli Baba, from uh, Ram Dass's books, particularly Be Here Now, is um, you know, my, my main connection to, to the Dharma, uh, my first connection to the Dharma. And he would say, um, one of his main lines, suffering is grace. Don't you see? Suffering is grace. How is that possible? And as we look at, at this in our own practice, just see if you, if you fight it when you suffer or if you can see it as grace. First, I want to go through some of the, the hindrances, go through all the hindrances briefly just to remind you and the, to um, keep them in, in mind. It's very helpful to see that they are a list that the Buddha said, the, it's, it's in the fourth foundation of, my, of mindfulness that starts with the five hindrances. He says, see how the mind works. He's not just talking about your mind. He says, see how the mind works. And the more you can understand how it gets caught, the, the freer the possibility is. And since... Again, these first three days, there's um, probably the settling in period uh, is, a, is an adjustment for most everybody. As much as you wanted to be here, as much as you longed and set your whole life up to be here, it's, it's rare that it just you start out clear sailing and just go on off into the sunset. That the first few days, there is sleepiness, Restlessness, achy body, wandering mind. Anybody have any of those? (laughs) If you've got all four of them, great, you're right on schedule. But we kind of forget that and say, come on, let's get to the real meditation. This first period, as we're coming in for a landing, so to speak, we are learning to be here for this too. This is not a mistake. It doesn't have to be a problem. This is, this is the task of practice. And what gets easier over time, if you remember from one retreat to another, is, oh yeah, this is part of the deal. I can be with this. So just to remind you, the big five, the wanting mind, desire, looking for something to land on, looking for the next thing that will make me feel good. Oh, I just want my body to cooperate. Oh, I just want something really good for lunch. Oh, it's been pretty good too. Oh, you know, if I only had a better sleeping situation or cushion or whatever it is, you know, then I could really get in the groove. And it's not that desire is a bad thing, it's just that it, it keeps us 
unclear and, and missing what's here right now. It's the second noble truth. It's what causes our suffering, our attachment to desire. And we can't even appreciate while we're in the middle of a pleasant experience. You know, I've, one story that I've shared before that, that I'll share now that comes to mind is my, my son Adam, uh, when, we were, when he was very young down at, at Yucca Valley, and uh, he was, we were in the, snack, in the, uh, in the staff room and I, we were having snack, and he had this big bowl of strawberries, which was his favorite food, and he was just stuffing in his mouth, and I wanted to have him learn to eat mindfully, you know, not. He was two and a half at the time. <laughs> and so, uh, and so you know, he didn't want to hear anything of it. He's just kind of stuffing it in his mouth, and I, I kept it out of his reach once, and I said, Adam, Adam, just eat what you've got there. Just enjoy it. And he didn't want to hear anything about that. And there's this one moment that's indelible in my mind. This huge strawberry in his mouth as he's going, strawberry! <laughs> uh, and that's how we get caught, that we can't even taste what's in our right here for us when we're thinking, oh, the next one's going to be so good. Isn't that how life works? So interesting how the game is set up. So there's desire, there's wanting, you know, what is it that you've wanted in the last couple of, couple of days? You know, whether it's something from home or something here, it kind of, as the days go on, it's more, it, it, the beginning you think about home and all the things that you, that you long for, and then after a few days it's, you know, oh, what's for lunch? You're more kind of here. Um, but the, the force of desire keeps on playing itself out, and it keeps us from seeing the truth. It's not that it's, like I say, it's bad, but it's inherently unsatisfying because whatever you can achieve or get is going to be short-lived. It's not going to be lasting happiness. And it, it just fans that it feels so good as you get the gratification that we get seduced into thinking, oh, the game is to manufacture another desire and get that one gratified. And if I put them close enough together so that there's no gaps, I win. Right? <laughs> but it doesn't work that way. It just keeps us hooked. Then there's the opposite of desire or aversion, which is the flip side of the wanting mind wanting something to not be here. And again, it keeps us from seeing clearly. You're sitting, feeling the breath, or wherever you happen to be noticing, and all of a sudden there's a little annoying twinge in your knee or your shoulder. Or maybe even just a slight little buzz that you don't like, you know, mm, or somebody near you is breathing loudly, you know, or even moderately loudly so that you can hear it, and your meditation is ruined. Right? <laughs> if they weren't breathing loudly, I'd be doing fine. You know? And that consumes your experience. 
one month I'm going to be here with them. Oh my God, what am I going to do? And aversion takes over. At that point, nothing else counts except that annoying stimulus. So we get caught by aversion. How has it played out in your mind these last days? What has there been that might just set you off with contraction, either annoyance or irritation or downright anger and hatred and all kinds of thoughts that perhaps you wish weren't there. The Vipassana Vendetta, maybe that is started in your mind. And it's just this not liking what's actually here. It's a very powerful force. I mean, it, look at all the, all the dukkha, all the suffering, all the pain and sorrow in the world because people just don't feel comfortable around each other or anyone that's different from them. I don't like them. Amazing. So how does it play out in your mind? Can you be kind with it? Can you see it clearly? Can you use it to wake up? The third hindrance, what hinders clarity, is the favorite on the first few days, sloth and torpor. Just, you're slogging your way through. You know, sometimes I feel like I'm in a swamp, you know, with, and I, I, I don't have a machete around, and I'm just kind of slogging through. And there you are kind of like, you know, nodding off, you know, the classic nods. And it's one thing to feel yourself sleepy and drowsy, and then on top of it, we add all of those thoughts and judgments. What kind of a meditator do you call yourself? You know? <laughs> Yogi, right? Get with the program. Wake up. What can I do? This is awful. And it's just low energy. That's what happens. It takes a little while to, to get in touch with your own energy. I think of the first few days as a kind of detox program where we're detoxing from stimulation. And we're so used to running on the energy around us that when you come here and there's not much happening, not much entertainment, it's like somebody's pulled the plug. Okay, must be time to go to sleep. And it takes a little while to get in touch with your own energy. You're not doing anything wrong. It's just part of the practice. And then the opposite. The restless mind, restlessness, agitation, worry, sometimes guilt. Often restlessness is about past and future, things that have happened, things that might happen. You know. Or it's just an energetic feeling where you feel like you're going to just pop out of your, out of your skin. And it's so interesting how sometimes it can be sleepiness 
for a while, moment after moment, and then followed by restlessness. You feel like you're buzzing, and then you go to sleep, and then you're kind of restless. You know. It takes a little while to kind of find that, that place where you're, the energy balances out. Whether it's thoughts about the past, guilt, oh, I can't believe I've done this. I come from a lineage of guilt where, you know, it just doesn't do anything, any good to keep on replaying over and over unless you get a sense of what you can learn from things or worry. You know, isn't it amazing how we can think of things that haven't happened yet and kind of throw it out in front of us in some place called the future and then start worrying about it? You know, oh my goodness, what if that happens? My, my mother is a big worrier and she says if she can't think of anything to worry about, then she really gets worried. Okay? <laughs> it's like you kind of need something to, to focus on as if you're kind of keeping things at bay. It's really painful. Whatever, whether it's a restlessness in the mind or in the body, it's part of the package. And then there is the fifth one, the doubting mind. I can't do this. This isn't working. This is weird. Everybody is sitting like a Buddha and I'm just kind of, you know, falling asleep or freaking out here, you know. It's really hard when that takes over. Have you had any doubts? I don't know. Was this a really good idea to sign up for this month after all? Will I make it to the end? You know, I remember the first time I, I did a three-month retreat. By the third day, my mind was saying, 11 weeks, three days, 15 hours, 20 minutes, I'm never going to make it. You know. Has that thought come to you? I've never seen a retreat that got stuck in the middle. They all keep on unfolding. Fortunately, somebody gave a talk on patience that, uh, that first week. And every time I saw myself moving to the finish line or trying, wondering if I'd make it, I'd just come back. Okay, what's here right now? So these are the, the big five. And there are variations, whether it's fear or doubt or sadness or uh, unhappiness or confusion or all, they're all these difficult mind states that we get caught up in. And the thing to remember about them is that they are impermanent and they are impersonal. They are, there's no mind state that can last no matter how Sweet it is, ain't going to last. No matter how difficult it is, it's not going to last. And they're impersonal. They're not who you are. They're just visitors, just energies coming to present themselves for a while. If you had any control, you probably wouldn't say, oh, how about a little doubt right now? It just comes on its own. So it's not anything you have to take responsibility for. But when they come, we get caught. 
and we really do get caught. It's amazing. Even if you've been doing this for a long time, one of my, my favorite lines is uh, from the Hindu tradition. It says, even a 93-year-old saint isn't safe. It's just one thought away. And when you do get caught, when you're caught in the grip of a mind state that has clouded your clear seeing, then um, there's, it's hard to wake up from it. That's what practice is about. I've been reading this, this book um, that's recently come out uh, called Emotional Awareness, uh, the Dalai Lama and Paul Ekman having this conversation about emotions. And Paul Ekman is this guy who um, has been studying emotions. He's the facial expert that can read, yeah, can read faces. He's the ultimate uh, face reader. They, in fact, I've just heard they're, they're having a, a new TV show based on, on uh, the fact that you can't, you can, uh, about lying, that you can't, uh, you can't put a lie past Paul Ekman. He, and uh, it's, it's, it's based on some of his work. I, I don't know much more about it, but he's hired by you know, the government and stuff like that to, to read people's faces. And he's been studying emotions for quite some time. And he, um, he talks about when we're in the grip of an emotion, there is what's called the refractory period and once the emotional behavior or mindset state is set off, the refractory period begins in which we are not only not monitoring what's happening, but we cannot reconsider what's happening. We cannot perceive anything in the external world that is inconsistent with the emotion we're feeling. All the information available to us is filtered to just what supports the emotion. Isn't that interesting? You just are sure, absolutely sure, of your reality. You're sure that everybody is noticing your... the way you're walking, the way you're, you know, you you put too much food on your plate at mealtime, and you're sure everybody has seen. It's amazing how everything just is, is um, corroborating, confirming your experience. Uh, I'll, I'll share a story that, that uh, Carol sometimes shares. She doesn't usually name her friend, but it's me. Uh, <laughs> well, one time we were down at Yucca Valley, and um, it was a hot day, and um, the thought ice cream came to me. And I said, gee, wouldn't it be great to get some ice cream? And uh, she kind of caught the desire, yeah, it would be really good to get some ice cream. So we said, let's go get some ice cream. We got in the car, driving down Highway 62, I guess it is. Um, hmm, I never thought it was just close to Highway 61. Um, my mind just went to a Bob Dylan song there. Uh, it felt like Highway 61. And, 
and I, we were going down the road, going down the road. My eyes are, weren't so, really weren't good in those days, but um, all of a sudden I saw across the way, I said, look, there it is, Yogurt Cafe. And it happened to be urgent care that I... <laughs> <laughs> I was so excited. I was sure that was the ice cream stand, right? You know, there I was in the grip of that emotion, yogurt cafe. How beautiful. So what the practice does is it, it, um, it starts to minimize the refractory period over time where you're, where you're not so caught in the grip of your own delusion. Uh, and in this book, it's kind of interesting, the Dalai Lama and, and Paul Ekman talk about uh, that learning process over time. The Dalai Lama calls it uh, good, but kind of kindergarten practice where you've gone, you've been swept away, gone through the whole emotion, and then you learn in retrospect, oh yeah, I really got lost there. What can I, how can I learn from that? And it's wonderful. And then he says, uh, high school level is when you're in the middle of the emotion, in the middle of the action, and you say, oh, and you wake up. Then uh, PhD, he calls it, when you recognize the impulse to, uh, to act on that emotion, and you see it for what it is, and then it, uh, and then it dissipates. And then they talk about the postdoctorate practice where the impulse doesn't arise. <laughs> now, when you hear that, you probably long to be a, a postdoc in not getting lost in emotions. But the thing is, you can't hurry the process, can you? And we're all here to learn. We can't control the timetable. But the mind says, how am I doing? And it starts to compare either with the last retreat you were on or with other people around you, have you noticed the comparing mind going? Somebody talked about it in, in the uh, interviews today. A couple of people talked about it in the interviews today. And there's some kind of idea of what should be happening that we hold ourselves up, we measure ourselves up against. Oh, if I were a hindrance-free yogi, I'm doing good practice. And your idea of a hindrance-free yogi or a yogi that is really doing practice might be very different from the next person. You know, I used to, I remember on one retreat when uh, it was one of my uh, earlier retreats and um, everybody around me was going through these major catharses and, you know, the tissues were just kind of <laughs> disappearing all over the place. And I was just sitting there feeling my breath, you know. <laughs> but I, you know, at first I thought, well, that's fine. But then I got kind of concerned. And I went, to, <laughs> I went to Joseph and I said, you know, I think I'm missing something here. It's just, you know, it's just kind of, nothing's happening. I feel the breath come in and out and no major deep processes, you know. And he said, don't go looking for trouble. You know, it, it, <laughs> it'll find you soon enough, which it did. But we can have all kinds of ideas what, what good practice is like. There you are doing, doing the walking meditation, and you see somebody going really slowly. 
Or a couple of hours later, you can see somebody going really slowly and thinking, oh, who are they trying to impress? You know? <laughs> the mind will just do anything as it starts. Or you see somebody walking a natural pace, and you say, gosh, they're just being themselves. They're just being so natural. I wish I didn't have to put on some airs, you know. Or a few hours later, you know, God, don't they get it? Just slow down, man. We're here to practice, you know. So whatever your mind will tell you is just what your mind tells you. But when you're lost in the grip of that mind state, it's really painful, especially when on top of it you add what the Buddha talked about is the second dart. You start judging yourself for getting caught, for being so petty or so comparing or such a lousy meditator. It's very painful. But it is the richness of practice. And I want to share this quote from Sri Aurobindo, who says, you carry in yourself all the obstacles necessary to make your realization perfect. If you discover a very black hole, a thick shadow, you can be sure that there is somewhere in you a great light. It is up to you to know how to use the one to realize the other. When you're going through these mind states, when you're really suffering because where your mind takes you is is very confused or dark or scary or humbling. There's a gift there in suffering. There's, that's where suffering becomes real grace. Being humbled is not a bad thing. From time to time, it's actually a very good thing because that's how we grow. So it's not so much, how do I get rid of these? How do I work with these? How do I use them? The richness of my practice. I was speaking to somebody today, somebody who's really wise, you know, and, and who's been practicing for a while, a therapist, a, a guide you know, for people, and um, doing really good work in the world. And, um, and the last time I, I saw them was a few years ago on a retreat when they were they were sitting and and just having this incredibly blissful retreat every time they came into the room it was like i was having darshan you know wow you know and i was wondering well how's it been since you know and uh they said that um after that first month they continued sitting the the second month and um at the end of the second month there was a very inspiring Tibetan Lama who came, who just really touched, touched them deeply. And uh, they made the aspiration, may I learn everything I can about equanimity. And then, after that, <laughs> from bliss, you can guess what happened. The next retreat and the next period of their life was so hard. I was really quite amazed as, as I was hearing all the difficulties, all the places that, that, all the stuff that came up that had been hidden there. And 
they learned equanimity. They got what they asked for much in a much deeper way than would have ever happened if it just carried along all the bliss and love and light. If you really want to wake up, you've got to be here for the whole show. <clears throat> I, uh, I came across, uh, actually I just came out to a really wonderful book recently. Um, it's a new book by Adi Ashanti. It's, it's just, just coming out. And uh, he talks about even, even after you see things in a very profound way as, as, as he has, you know, there is a process unfolding. The whole book is about what happens after you've seen the light, all the stuff that you go through. It's really, really beautiful. And he says, um, I can remember when I was 25 and I had my first real sort of spiritual awakening. It was very powerful and very freeing. There I was, a 25-year-old kid who suddenly had no fear in his system. I knew that I was deathless and, I could, and could not be harmed, and all of our inherent survival instincts disappeared out of my system. A few months after that realization, I went to see my teacher. We'd always see her on Sunday mornings. We'd sit and meditate. She'd give a talk. We'd meditate a little more, and then we would all have breakfast together. This time, when I sat down in that room with all of the other students, this sense of superiority <coughs> arose in me. It really surprised me. Over time, I started calling it Superiority Man. I was sitting there in meditation, and all of a sudden, Superiority Man arose. I looked around, and there was this sense that the other people in the room knew nothing. They didn't know anything about the truth. They didn't know anything about reality. I, on the other hand, had this great realization. I was immediately horrified because, fortunately for me, I knew it wasn't true. The realization itself showed me that superiority is a total dream, but that didn't keep superiority man from making an appearance. My mind was creating this great sense of superiority out of the facts of awakening. I tried everything to get rid of superiority man. At first, I just tried reminding myself that it wasn't true, going back to that place inside where superiority had no reality. And yet every time I'd show up for meditation week after week, it would arise. I tried everything, and I tried hating it to death. Then I tried loving it to death, accepting it and allowing it to be, in hope that it would go away. I would look at where, I where it was coming from, why it was arising. As the weeks went by, I tried every strategy I could come up with to eliminate it, and all the strategies failed. Every Sunday morning, I'd show up, sit down, and superiority man would arise. Finally, one morning, I realized that there was actually nothing I could do about superiority man. It was like being completely defeated. I realized I'd tried everything to get rid of it and nothing was working. There was nothing I could do. It wasn't a dismissal. It wasn't like I was becoming blind to it. It was an authentic, sincere realization. It was a moment of utter defeat. I saw that it doesn't matter how much I've realized, I can, I can still be defeated. I can still have something arise within me that's not true, that I can can't actually get rid of, even after the awakening that happened. I sat there and allowed myself to be defeated. I meditated for a while longer, 
Then I got up with everyone else and we started to have breakfast. I noticed that when we all sat down to breakfast together, the sense of superiority lifted. It wasn't because I suddenly understood something. There was no reason. I had realized that there was nothing I could do about it. Encountering the fact that I could not get rid of this arrogance, no matter what I tried, was one of the first experiences I'd had, and there, I had, and there would be many more, of the futility of personal will. Sometimes all you can do is surrender. All you can do is say, yeah, that's how it is. And open up to it, not pretend, not try, not be a perfect yogi, but just open up to the truth of things. This is from Ramdas, Be Here Now. He says, as you further purify yourself, your impurities will seem grosser and larger. Understand that it's not that you're getting more caught in the illusion, it's just that you're seeing it more clearly. The lions guarding the gates get fiercer as you go towards each inner temple, but of course the light gets brighter too. So how to work with these difficulties, how to work with these hindrances or any mind state that grabs us. I'll just share with you things that you probably know and uh, just to remind you, they're all workable. The first, obviously, is mindfulness. That is, being with what's here, not pretending, being uncompromisingly honest oh, this is what's happening. Recognizing, oh, there's fear here right now. Oh, there's confusion. Oh, there's sadness. There's loneliness. There's anger. There's rage. There's lust. There's longing. There's whatever. Oh, that's it. Sometimes that first recognition, saying this is what's really going on and not pretending, is tremendously freeing. As uh, Nyanapanika Tara says in, uh, in The Power of Mindfulness, he says, it's like the old mythology uh, stories where the, the her heroine or the hero couldn't figure out how to defeat the monster or the demon, but once they found the demon's name or the monster's name, the power was taken away. Oh, that's who you are. That's like the light of awareness. Oh, this is what's happening. And not pretending, not protecting ourselves from it, because the aversion just locks it in. The power, there's a real power in that vulnerability that says, yes, this is happening. And opening to what, uh, I love Pema Chodron's term, opening to the soft spot inside. That's not trying to protect, not trying to defend, but saying, oh yeah, this is it. This is part of my humanity. And once you do that, then um, there's great possibilities. I want to read to you uh, a story, an anecdote of, of someone, a woman who um, whose father died suddenly at the age of 66. And um, 
they, when her grandparents died a few years before, nobody in their family spoke about it. And they didn't have a ceremony. They didn't do anything like that. And this time, she said, it was going to be different. Every day, I set the intention to experience my grief and let it flow, rip through me without fear. Uh, this, is, uh, this is somebody who uh, was in the, uh, the joy course that I teach. And Sylvia Borstein was one of the guest speakers. And she says, Sylvia said something in that course that stuck with me. The essential wisdom is to know what's happening when it's happening and not to be in contention with it. That's what I wanted to be able to do. And so she kept on feeling it, but at some point she was, she was getting ready for the funeral and she was getting dressed and she was actually she was in the shower and she just said, no, 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 I don't want my father to be dead, right? And she just was filled with anguish and regret. And then she says, I realized I was trying to push away what was happening. I was literally saying no. As I gently allowed the truth to sink in again, though, I realized that the no was an attempt to protect my heart, to control the experience. How could I protect my heart? It was already broken. How could I control anything? We die. I don't want to sugarcoat it. This hurts. The pain is powerful and often scary, but I'm glad I'm here for it. And then she says, opening up to that, there have been wonderful, joyful moments as I've gone through this, connecting with my family in a way that we never did before, feeling all the surges of love that erase the other difficulties, feeling connected with my father in ways I never had before. It was so beautiful. Nothing like this ever happened in my family, and I know it was because that seed was planted by letting myself open to the pain that was there. So we start by recognizing and saying, this is really happening, and allowing for it to be here, to let it all in, to not pretend, to just feel it. My, my dog, my beloved dog, Pal, um, uh, passed away this year in May, and he was an amazing guy. He was the highest guy in my family. I know everybody thinks their dogs is really special, but Pal was really special. <laughs> and uh, and I, I went through this grieving process, and I and I'd find myself crying, and then and then I'd kind of uh, do other things to dist- I could I I wasn't really doing much of anything, but I then I do some other stuff and distract myself. And then I'd say, no, I think I need more tears here. And I'd put on this Will Ackerman melancholy piece that I, I can't hear without, you know, as the cello starts playing, it tugs at my heart and just more tears. And I'd speak to Pal out loud just to say, you know, hey boy, how you doing? And, and uh, just, just feel it, there he is. And it was something so cleansing in that. Not that you necessarily necessarily want to go for catharsis, but just that if it's there and needs to come out, that's fine. This is Dana Falls, who I've been reading from it at night, uh, the late night sitting, allow. There is no controlling life. Try corralling a lightning bolt containing a, torma- a tornado. Dam a stream and it will create a new channel. Resist and the tide will sweep you off your feet. Allow and the grace will carry you to higher ground. The only safety lies in letting it all in, the wild with the weak, 
fear, fantasies, failures, and success, when loss rips off the doors of the heart or sadness fails your vision with despair, practice becomes simply bearing the truth. In the choice to let go of your known way of being, the whole world is revealed to your new eyes. So recognizing what's here, allowing it to be here, letting yourself feel it, looking, investigating with curiosity. What does it feel like? Because your awareness can hold it all. That's the beautiful thing. When you're afraid and you investigate fear, that which is aware of the fear is not afraid. The awareness can hold anything. And so to really let yourself become curious instead of pushing yourself away or hoping that it'll pass, <laughs> you open yourself up and in that moment you see this mind state is just dancing here for a little while. Oh, let's see, what is this about? And then the real gift of the practice is in not taking it personally, non-identification. That exploring your mind states is really a, a practice of anatta. You are learning firsthand Whenever you're saying, I shouldn't be feeling what I'm feeling. I should have control. I should be over this. I can't believe I'm stuck again. That's all, you hear all that I? But when you see, oh, it's not me. It's not me. It's just the human experience. Then you're practicing for all of us. Then you take out the personal and see, oh, I am exploring this laboratory to see what is actually here and open up and learn from it. And as you do, you see that you're not only learning for yourself, but you're learning for everyone. Because the work that you do is something that becomes your gift to everyone else. This is from a, a yogi who wrote me a note. Uh, a, few, a couple of years ago. I don't save that many notes, but I saved this one. And she said, um, this has been a deep exploration of an energy in my life that's the hardest thing I've known. Call it grief, contraction, depression. Very sticky for me when it arises. Very powerful. So to bring it into the light of awareness, to stay present with it, a piercing pain in the heart, to bring compassion to it, to understand how it connects me with all beings, to know the unstained awareness that can feel it but not be it, to call on a kind of warrior courage in allowing it, seeing what it's been in my life, where it comes from, what it says, how I've habitually reacted to it. That's what this whole time has been about. I don't know what it will mean to be to, to my life to have done this work, but I know I had to do it, and I think there's healing there, a new relationship to sorrow and pain, my own and others. What I can see already is that this ability to stay present with pain, with great awareness and kindness, is the heart of being able to be present in the same way with the pain of others, and that is a gift for certain. 
That's what we're doing. We're learning not only for ourselves, but for everybody else. And we're also learning to have a fearlessness with the difficulties that arise. And that bears fruit later on in our life. I want to share with you um, Guy had mentioned about Don Flaxman uh, the first night, the, the former president of the board, who passed away just a few weeks ago. And uh, I, I was a good friend of Don's, so he was a good friend of mine. And towards the end, it was last, oh, <laughs> maybe six months ago, we talked about his process. And I was taking notes in our conversation because it was like having Darshan. He said, um, you know, I used to think that maybe going quickly would be the way I'd want to go. But this process of the cancer has given me a whole other understanding. And he said, this is, as he took the notes, I'm now in the richest period of my life, James. Now that I have less time, I'm more open than I have ever been. I'm amazed at how much joy is available just by smelling a pretty flower, seeing a hummingbird, or hearing a friend's voice. I don't waste my time complaining. Expressing love and gratitude is the most important thing I can do now. We're doing it for ourselves. We're doing it for others. Every time you are willing to be here for that first noble truth, it calls forth in you resources that you didn't know were there. That's how it works. Isn't that amazing? I didn't know I had the courage to go through that stuff. I didn't know that I could find some kind of balance in the middle of that. That's what you're learning. You're surprising yourself. You're finding the place inside of you that's even more powerful than your fears and confusion. So you don't have to go looking for trouble, but when it comes, it's really grace. When it's not here, enjoy. Enjoy the, the peace, the sweetness, the compassion, the love, the open-heartedness. That's beautiful. Every moment counts. That's the beauty. When it's pleasant, how wonderful to see it, to know it, to see it come and go. When it's difficult, how wonderful to wake up to it, to open to it, to not take it personally, to see it come and go. And there's an awareness that can be with it all. So let's sit for a moment. Your joy is your sorrow unmasked, and the self-same well from which your laughter rises was oftentimes filled with your tears. The deeper that sorrow, 
carves into your being the more joy you can contain. attention and we'll come back for a chanting and I'll tuck you in again. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.